So we have been going through the Old Testament, looking at these pictures of Christ and these central characters of the Old Testament. Today is, is definitely one of my favorites. It's, it's King David. You know, King David is what we know, I mean, kind of a big deal. He was in the, in the scripture in Acts 13, Paul said that he was a man after God's own heart. Now, wouldn't you like to have that description said about you? I mean, Enoch walked with God. There was others that were friends of God. Moses talked with God face to face. But what if it was said of you like of King David, a man after God's own heart that would do his will? Can you think of that on your tombstone? I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Could it be said of you, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart who will do my will? And because he had that passion, because he had that heart, God used him to be the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. We see that in Luke when Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary. He said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Not his father, you get it in the lineage, right? Great, 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 great grandfather, about 975 years removed, plus or minus a couple. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, this is just like as we've gone through the Old Testament, we're like God uses just some phenomenal characters. God used Ruth the Moabite. Right? God uses David, the murderer, the adulterer. Oh, but he was a man after God's own heart. So which was he? Well, we're going to unpack that today. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he was perfectible. And he's, and he's mentioned here in Luke 1 by the angel Gabriel. How phenomenal is that? And so there's hope for you. Because I don't think there's too many murderers in this room, right? And, and, and this guy's a murderer and an adulterer. And he's the great, great grandfather of Jesus. We serve a God of grace. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a phenomenal God who is alive and who is active. So what qualified David to be used by God in such a powerful way? What prepared and equipped David to be used by God? And I want to look at these different characteristics starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll see six characteristics of the king and I would like to point out, you know, that any characteristic that we see in David, it's absolutely perfected in Jesus Christ in the most phenomenal way. And that would be sermon upon sermon, hour upon hour. But this first characteristic that we see, sorry if you, see, if you need a magnifying glass for that, um, but it's his humility. He's humble. But the Lord said to Samuel, so Samuel's this prophet, right, that anointed the first king of Israel. Where we are at in our timeline, in our chronology, is that King Saul um, definitely is not in favor with God right now, right? He has fallen out of favor. He has is, he is gone after witches and sorcerers and, and all kinds of medians. And, and God said, my hand is removed from Saul. And Samuel is a prophet that God sends to anoint the next king of Israel. And he goes to the house of Jesse, and that's where Samuel's at. And he says, God says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. He's talking about Saul, who was tall and good-looking, and he was a man's man. He was this phenomenal leader. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is very important that we see this at the beginning of David's life where he says, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, where it's said of David that David was a what? A man after God's own heart. So the bookends of David's life, the beginning and the end of Scripture, the first mention of, Dan, of David in 1 Samuel 16, the last mention of David, okay, besides some eschatological references in Revelation, there in Acts chapter 13 is his heart, that he was a man after God's own heart. Samuel said to Jesse, that's David's father, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, I just think that, I mean, like, this is humble origins. This is humble origins. Josh McDowell tells a story. If you don't know who Josh McDowell is, he's written prolific Christian writer and apologist in the 20th century. He's still alive, seeking the Lord, but, I mean, kind of made his fame in the 20th century. And um, he worked for Campus Crusade, and he wrote a book called, like, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter. Some other books like that that are phenomenal and definitely to give to people that are, have questions about Christ and his deity and who he is and and uh, he was in his 20s working for Campus Crusade in the Orlando um, field office. And he was, had toilet detail the whole week. And he had the rubber gloves on. And he had, like, the poop bucket. And he had the p toilet sponge. And who walks into the main hall right in front of him but Billy Graham. And, uh, and he's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to get another opportunity to shake Billy Graham's hand. He may not want to shake my hand. Pulls off the rubber glove. And he said all of a sudden he was like, this is so humbling. Like, I'm nobody. I've got, you know, been cleaning bathrooms all day long. I've got my toilet bucket. I've got my rubber gloves. And there's Billy Graham. I'm, I could be egotistical and run the other way. Or I could humble myself and go introduce. And he said it was such a humbling picture because he's like, man, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. Well, Josh became somebody, which is pretty cool. We're all somebody in Christ. You get the point. And so we got David, like the sheep herder. Like we got David the shepherd, David the farmer. Like you don't get more humble. You don't get to a lower station. Like, hey, is this all the sons you got? Oh, no, I've got another one. He's cleaning up the sheep dung. He's out at the pasture, you know. And, and so we get this picture of David the servant, and he sent and he brought him in. And he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It's pretty cool. We get some general descriptions of his external. We also know of his internal. And the Lord was looking for the heart in that is what qualified David in this instance. So Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And we get this first picture of David in the scripture. And we don't get like these words from David. We don't get like, hey, what's going on? David is around 16 years old. He's a young boy. Can you imagine this anointing? Can you imagine the, like your older brothers were passed over? What would you be thinking at this point? Okay, God, like did I eat some bad pizza last night? Do I have bad indigestion? What's going on? 
we see David in 1 Samuel 17, and this is like just one of the most incredible stories that we know about David, right? It's David and Goliath, and we see a picture of David's character and his integrity and how honorable he is and how he is jealous for God's name. This is a story most of us are familiar with, and since we're doing a 30,000-foot aerial view of David's life, and there's a few other stories as well, we'll fly through this one. Well, don't skip it. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. His brothers were at war in the army. David was taking them some food, right? So we get this picture of servant David uh, taking them some food. They're at war. So he's not even of age to fight yet. His dad, Jesse, is holding him back. And as he talks with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke by the same words as before. And David heard him. So you got this giant that is super tall and super strong and super boisterous and super arrogant. And he's super sacrilegious and vile and he's cursing God and he's cursing the Israelites and he's mocking them and everyone's afraid of them. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach? The reproach is that he's mocking you. I mean, it's just like you're listening to it day and night. He's a reproach. He's a reproach. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look, David is jealous of God. And David is jealous for the reputation of God and the name of God and saying, how could you let this go unchecked? He's defying God, the living God, and no one's doing a thing about it. Does this not bother you? Does this not bother you? And I think at this point it would be appropriate to say, you know, what bothers you? What offends you? Because what offended David was this giant, this Goliath, who is defying the living God. We get bent out of shape over a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? If you're in the the left turn lane and it's a yellow light and someone doesn't go, that's always my favorite. When, you know, like you see this person that the car in front of them didn't go because it would have been running a red light. And the person that wanted them to go is just like laying on the horn, freaking out. And I kind of just look at my clock and I count it out. It's like 35 seconds till the next green light. I'm just like, like, you just freaked out over 35 seconds, but every eight seconds in this world, a child dies of preventable disease or starvation. Are you freaking out about that? You know, you lose your place in the subway line and you want to fight somebody. Your football team doesn't get the draft pick that you want or whatever. And we act like the cosmos is out of order. But then, like, stuff that really matters, we sleep just fine at night. We don't think two seconds about the spiritual condition of our city or the poverty that's in our city. It's crazy. What bothered David was that people were defying God. The Philistines were defying God. That's what he took offense over. And I think that we need to be like Nehemiah when Nehemiah heard that the walls were broken down and he wept and he fasted. What breaks your heart? What breaks my heart? As a church, what breaks our collective heart? What are we moved to action over? Nehemiah was moved to action over the city of Jerusalem and the walls, and he took action. King David, not King David, boy David, who's anointed, is going to take action. He has no status recognized by anyone. 
And the Philistines, this is Goliath now, the interaction. The Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me now and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. That's like the best smack I've ever read, right? You come to me with a javelin and a spear and you're pretty big and you're pretty strong. I come to you in the name of the living God. The name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. There's things to fight over. There's things worth losing a night's sleep over. There's things worth losing your lunch money over. Wisdom is knowing the difference in the three. There's things worth losing your life over. There's things worth losing a night's sleep over. There's things worth losing your lunch money over. Wisdom is knowing the difference. For David, this was worth his life because God and his reputation and his name was being defied. And this is what qualifies him as the king. We see this. He is an initiator. He is not passive. He's not looking around. He's the youngest of his brothers. He has no training. He's not in the military. He has no training but what he's received himself, right? And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I skipped over. Yeah, that was bad. You're like, okay, what happened? So what happens is this, this great, and like I said, for the sake of time, um, David gets the stones from the creek, and he says to, to Goliath, he says, the God that delivered me from the hand of the lion and the bear will deliver me from you. And he kills him. And, but his faith was in God's faithfulness. His faith was in God's who had been there for him. And he led him out into that situation. So David was fighting for the reputation of God and for the honor of God. And God delivered him. Now the next characteristic that I love is the relationship between David and Jonathan. And this is the stone heap. You're like, what? What happened? Day, uh, so um, there was a servant that left. David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. This is his relationship with Jonathan. And this is him and Jonathan. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Very special relationship these two had with one another and the loyalty. You can see it in 1 Samuel 18 as well. It said their souls were knit together. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. How many relationships do you have that are like that? You can probably count that on one hand. We, I mean, look at that. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. We have this loyalty, this bond together. God has knit our hearts together. That's what it said in 1 Samuel 18. Right coming out of Goliath in 17, we see this special loyalty, this special friendship, this special bond that superseded everything else that God was doing because God brought them together. And they were faithful to one another, loyal to one another, and they supported one another. And Jonathan was constantly protecting David from his crazy father, Saul. Jonathan, by the way, if I didn't mention, was the son of King Saul. 
right? And King Saul numerous times tried to kill King David, the anointed King David. And Jonathan was always on the lookout. Jonathan was always watching out for him, had his back. This type of friendship, this type of loyalty, I love it. I love it. What, what you see here, the sacrifice, the faithfulness. You know, true love is doing what is best for another individual. Our world's definition of love is doing what is best for me. It's immediate gratification. Our world's always, you know, in counseling young people that are sexually promiscuous, it's, it's always an interesting conversation when he's like, but I love her but I want to protect her virginity. And I'm like, okay, well, those two statements are mutually exclusive in this way. If you truly loved her, you would do what was best for her. And, and getting her pregnant and then advising for the abortion, okay, getting her pregnant and then being gone three months later. Because, see, I've seen all these different scenarios, and it's so easy to say, oh, I love you, but what you're really saying is I want something, and it's about me right now, so serve me, love me, 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 me. True love is doing what's best for you. It's not prudish. Oh, we can't have fun. God and his rules. No, true love is doing what's best for another individual. Understanding the sanctity and the purity of monogamy in a marriage commitment and the marriage vows and that God honors that and blesses that. If you truly love her, you'll, you'll protect her. See, that's true love. And these two had this love for one another where they did what was best for one another. And he said, not just between me and you, but between our children and our children's children. That's pretty phenomenal. The next characteristic is patience. This, I wanted to preach the sermon today just on 1 Samuel 24 because it's possibly my favorite passage about David. But it's, it's hard to make a link to... Uh, to yeah, anyway, that's, I wanted to, to give a full 30,000-foot aerial as well. And this, I would encourage you in 1 Samuel 24 to look at it in its full context. At this point, King David, the anointed king, is running for his life. Crazy King Saul is hunting down David. Saul wants to kill David. David and his men are hiding in a cave. There's a psalm written by David about this. Pretty cool. So there's a cognate to this parallel passage. And, and uh, David is hiding with his men in the cave, and Saul goes into the cave to do what men do in a cave. You relieve yourself. You go use the bathroom. And so that's our context. And he came to the sheets fold by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So what are they saying to David? This is God's will. Look at the circumstances. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. This is those that read the tea leaves to say, Well, it's an open door, therefore you have to do it. Or it's a closed door, don't do it. That is one component in understanding what God is doing. You have the Word of God, you have the Spirit of God, and you have circumstances, and you have counselors. There's many components into discerning what God wants you to do. And David trumps circumstance with truth and Scripture. Because his men are saying, kill Saul. His pants are down, literally. He is exposed to you, literally. Kill him. 
kill him. David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Oh, stealthily, I like that. Verse 5, and afterward, it would help if we went to verse 4, and then I'm getting so excited about I told you I love this text. There's verse 4, and the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which your Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of... Look how sensitive he is. And look what struck him. What, what is it? What's that word there? His heart. And what was David? A man after God's own... David had a, a sensitivity spiritually. He, he was apologizing a lot, I think. I'm so sorry. Did I? He wasn't hypersensitive. He was sensitive. He wasn't insensitive. He was just in tune. And, and, and he's convicted because he cut off a corner of the robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And he goes out of the cave and he's like, Saul, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that. And Saul's like, you idiot, you should have killed me when you had the chance. You know, so they have this back and forth. But David is like, so cut to the heart immediately. Not even for cutting him, not even for trying to kill him. Just for cutting his robe. Because when he went out, he's like, hey, I could have killed you. And he's cut to the heart, he's convicted over it. And look that David says, you're the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. No, David's the Lord's anointed. But what David goes on to unpack in that passage, that if David, if God wants me in the city, reigning and ruling as king, then God will bring that to be. God's time is perfect. He's patient. How would you treat your enemy? This guy was trying to kill David numerous times, threw a spear at him. How many times has Saul tried to kill David up to this point? And if you're the Lord's anointed, could you have been in that cave that day and justified, oh, this is God? Samuel anointed me and removed the anointing from Saul because he was blasphemous. This is the opportunity. And David says, nope. This doesn't look like the opportunity to me. I don't feel good about this. Do you trust the Lord in that way? I don't. I'm so impatient I would have killed Saul immediately. David was anointed at 16, didn't become king till 31, 32. It's about a 16-year window. Could you wait 16 years on the Lord's timing? When you could have taken it into your own hands immediately right then and there? That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Especially when you have people whispering in your ear, I think this is God's will. And not I think, this is God's will. Look what God's done. You got to be careful to the noise that's around you. And you have to be in tune with God and his word and his spirit. To be patient the way David was patient. This passage will minister to you in so many ways on the Lord's timing. I'd really encourage you to dig deep into this passage in 1 Samuel 24. And to look at David. How does David love his enemy? He, he blesses him. Praise for him. Like Jesus said, Pray for your enemy and bless those that persecute you. Now, 
God rewards David with all of this. Pretty cool. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is what God says to David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So he's qualified as a servant. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now that's cool. This, you know, I took you from one sheep to the other sheep, from the literal sheep to the people that are my sheep, that you should shepherd, that you should prince, that you should lead them, my people. What a charge that God gave to David. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Not a literal house, but a, but a dynasty, a dynasty, a, a, an offspring that would carry on his name. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. That's what Solomon did. He built the temple, right? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For you, O Lord of hosts, this is David's response to what God said. And that's pretty cool. I mean, when you think about, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We see this is the Davidic covenant. We have the Noahic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the new covenant. We have the Davidic covenant. A phenomenal promise that God enters into, not with a perfect man, but a perfectible man. Because what's most sad about this promise is not the one who made it, but the one who received it. That just a few short chapters after this is when David sees another man's wife, sleeps with her, and then one of his mighty men, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, arranges for his death, murders him essentially, a murderer and an adulterer comes out of this. But it's not just what he did at that point, it's how he responded to it. David's response to God was always beautiful. Look at his response here. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And this is typical of David's life. If you read Psalm 51, when you read the Psalms of David coming out uh, in his repentance and his brokenness before God after he is exposed by the prophet. Nathaniel as a murderer, as an adulterer, his heart is broken. His heart is raw before God. He repents and he says, God, forgive me. God, have your way on me, with me. Remove my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. 
And see, David was not qualified to be king because he was perfect, (laughs) for we certainly know that is not true. But as I've said many times, he was perfectible. And when he saw his sin, he was broken before God and, and repented before God and said, God, forgive me. And that's how in Acts 13, you could read this beautiful statement. And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Verse 23, and of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. As the communion attendants come forward and as we prepare to take communion today, we have an open table of communion (coughs) here at Randall. And what that means is that regardless of what church you go to, as long as you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and partake of, of communion to celebrate his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What we see in David is this king that was so imperfect in so many ways, but so perfectible. And he gives us this genealogy here of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So if you would bow your heads with me and close your eyes, this is what I want you to envision of our Jesus. Born of a great-great-grandmother that was a harlot. Born of a great-great-grandmother that was a Moabite. Born of a great-great-grandfather that was a murderer and adulterer. You could throw in a lot of liars in there, thieves in there, polygamists. They weren't perfect. There was one coming that is perfect and will ever be perfect, and his name is Jesus. He was born in this miraculous way, conceived in a way that's never happened and never will happen. Mary, being a virgin, gives birth to the God-man, fully God, fully man. And he comes and he lives a perfect life. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He fulfilled the law. He didn't fall short when he was tempted. He didn't commit adultery like David. He didn't commit murder. When he was spit upon, he turned the other cheek. When his beard was plucked out, he said, Father, forgive them. Because, see, he was dying for us. He was taking our sins, our shame, our guilt, and he went to Calvary that day and died for us so we could be called children of God. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so we could be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's why we celebrate communion twice a month. The visible expression of the gospel, the broken body, the poured out blood. And that's why he said, do this in remembrance of me. When you come together, do this in remembrance. Remind yourselves of the sacrifice of the one innocent God, man, the Messiah, the perfect one who is dying for you. We deserve death. He deserved life. And instead, he took our death, our sin, our shame, our guilt, died and rose. And then he could look at us and say, because I live, you live.
Do you receive that today? Receive that today. If you've never received that, say, Jesus, I believe. And if you, if you have unbelief, say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know I came from somewhere. It's not all accident. And I know I'm going somewhere, and I know there's purpose, and it's all wrapped up in you. So unpack it for me, Jesus. I step out with unbelief, in belief, this giant contradiction that is in my head and my heart. But Jesus, meet, meet me where I am at. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God that died for my sins so I could be called your child. Have your way with me. That is the picture of King David. That is the picture of the ultimate King Jesus when we surrender and we hold up our hands and we say, I give up. I acquiesce. I surrender. Have your way with me. Do that now. And if you've already done that, celebrate it, revel in it, enjoy it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. May it never become ho-hum. May it never become mundane. May it never become trite. May it never become expected because you are not entitled. I am not entitled to anything but death and hell. And instead, I was given life. For that, we say thank you, Jesus. So Cody will facilitate, Ben will facilitate the passing out of the elements. May we commune, may we worship, may we exalt the God who is alive, the God who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. King David pointed to the ultimate king. Worship him as king. Respond to him as king. The king that you bow me to, the, key, the king that you say have your way with me. I love you, Jesus. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this now for your glory. Amen.